The Bible reading this morning will be in the Pew Bible on page 963. It's Matthew 16, 13 through 17. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you remember what our theme is for this year? And if not, you can look at the screen behind me and it will tell you. Our theme for this year is one. And with that theme, at the end of last year when we introduced it, we issued three challenges to the congregation. Those challenges were these. Choose one new way to serve the Lord, build one new Christian relationship, and impact one new soul for the Lord. Now, throughout the course of this year, we have given a lot of emphasis to the third of those three challenges. With our initiative of who is your one and, and our effort to invite our one to events and activities associated with this congregation and to, to help impact that one soul for the Lord, we've given a lot of emphasis to number three. Not as much emphasis has been given to number one and two. Now, that doesn't mean no uh, emphasis has been given. I mean, for instance, if you walk out in the foyer right now, you'll see this beautifully decorated wood wall it's called our Ministry Center. And that Ministry Center wall was erected with the intent of providing information on the ministries and opportunities to serve the Lord that exist within this congregation so that you, as a member of this body, can just walk out there and, and observe different ways you can serve the Lord. So that Ministry Center was an intentional way of emphasizing this one new way to serve the Lord, and it is our hope and our desire that you continue to seek out ways to serve the Lord that maybe you haven't done before. And the emphasis on uh, one new Christian relationship has been subtle, but it's been present in preaching when there have been sermons on unity and conflict resolution and letting go of grudges. And, and those messages, though not uh, emphasizing this particular challenge are related to this challenge because they're all about relationships within the body of Christ. And so these have not been neglected, but they have not necessarily been specifically emphasized. And so what we want to do with the remaining 14 weeks of this year is give some emphasis to those other two challenges. Oh, that's why you can't hear me. Leah helped pull this off earlier, and I forgot all about it. So guess what? We get to start over. Man, all that was good, too. Um, anyway, three emphases on the year. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. 
Three emphasis of the year. We put a lot of emphasis on number three throughout the year, less emphasis on number one and two. Now for the last 14 weeks of this year, we're going to put emphasis on number one and two. And that's the summary of everything I said the past 10 minutes. So what I want to do this morning is introduce a new series of lessons called Membership Matters. Because I think it's important for us to understand what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. But before we get any further, we we need to work on a little bit of definition here. Because sometimes we misuse words unintentionally because we don't quite understand their meaning. Uh, Let me give you a few examples of how we misuse words. A lot of us will use the term peruse when we're referring to a a simple observation or, or a skimming of something. But do you know what peruse really means? The definition of peruse is to read something typically in a thorough or careful way. To skim is to move quickly and lightly over something. Oftentimes we'll use the word peruse completely out of context, but not with any intention. It's just we don't fully understand the definition. Let me give you another word. What about sympathy and empathy? Sometimes we use the wrong term. Sympathy means feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune, while empathy is the ability to understand and share those feelings with another. And here's one more. Ironic and coincidental. Alanis Morissette got us all messed up with the word ironic. Ironic means happening in the opposite way to what is expected and typically causing wry amusement because of this. Coincidental means happening by chance or at the same time. And oftentimes we'll say something is ironic when what we really mean is it's coincidental. And this type of misuse of language is not limited to our secular vocabulary. Sometimes it manifests itself in religious jargon as well, in particular in the way that we use the term church. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about what the church is, And what the church is not. Because if we're going to talk about membership in the body of Christ, we need to understand what we're talking about. And so let's start with Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. We read this particular verse in our scripture reading a moment ago. But let's start here. Where Jesus says, after Peter makes that great confession, Jesus responds by saying, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oftentimes we go to this passage so that we can emphasize the constructor, the one who's doing the building. But this morning I want our emphasis to be on the construction. I want our emphasis to be on what he built. And you notice that term there. Church. I will build my church. The Greek term that is translated church in English is ekklesia. You may have heard this before. Ekklesia, it's used more than 110 times in the New Testament, and most always it's translated church or churches, at least in the vast majority of appearances. But if you were to look ekklesia up in a Greek-English lexicon, you're typically not going to see it defined simply with the term church. Instead, you're going to come across a definition like the following, following, which is taken from Thayer's Greek-English lexicon. A gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place 
or an assembly. The actual meaning of the term ecclesia is an assembly or a gathering of people who have been called out to assemble. That's the real meaning of ecclesia, but the majority of times you see that term translated in English, you're going to see the word church. But there are a couple of occasions in the Bible where this term is translated, but it's not translated church. And it helps us understand that ecclesia is not the same thing as church. So let me show you those two examples. The first one is in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. This is during Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, and he talks about Moses, and he says this. He says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. The word congregation is the word ecclesia. It's the word that we often translate as church. But here, it's used not in the context of the Christian assembly, so it's translated as congregation. So Stephen referred to Israel as a congregation of people. And, and this was a fitting term for a group who were chosen by God to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, as Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 calls them. And later, if you go to Acts chapter 19 and you look at verse 32 and verse 41, you have this episode where an Ephesian artisan named Demetrius who made household idols, was losing business due to the teaching of Paul against idolatry. And so he instigated a riot against Paul that resulted in a large crowd gathering in the city's theater. And we're told in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, that the assembly was in confusion. That word assembly is ecclesia. And in verse 41, we're told that the, the town clerk dismissed this assembly. Again, the use of the word ecclesia. It's the same exact word that gets translated church elsewhere in Scripture, but in this instance, it is referring to a gathering of citizens who were called out to a protest. And so it's not a reference to the Christian assembly, but it is a reference to an assembly. And the point is that this term that gets translated church in our English Bibles is better translated as an assembly or a gathering. It's not technically a religious term. It does not specifically mean church. Instead, it's a reference to an assembly or a gathering of people. And in the Bible, it is used in reference to both a secular assembly and a religious assembly. But our English translations tend to use the word church to distinguish the Christian body of believers from all other assemblies. So while the nation of Israel is called a congregation and the Ephesian protesters are called an assembly, those who are part of the body of Christ get called a church. But where did that word come from? The English term church descended from the Greek term kyriakos. Kyriakos is a Greek term that is typically translated the Lord's because it means belonging to the Lord. And there's only two instances of it in the New Testament. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20 where Kyriakos is used in reference to the, the Lord's Supper, a supper belonging to the Lord. The other occasion is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 where John makes reference to the Lord's Day, a day belonging to the Lord. And this term Kyriakos that refers to something that belongs to the Lord became the basis of the term church. It's because 
over time, the meeting place of Christians came to be known as the Lord's place or the Lord's building or the Lord's facility. Nowhere in the New Testament is kyriakos used in reference to a building or a location, but that's the term that came to be generally associated with buildings and assembly places that were dedicated for worship by Christians. You know, initially Christians did not have specialized facilities. You can read in Acts chapter 2 how they met in each other's homes or in a special section of the temple in Jerusalem. But during the reign of Emperor Constantine, Christianity became acceptable. And that meant persecution ceased. And prominent people became members of the church. And it became possible for them to acquire dedicated facilities. Just like the Jews had their synagogues and the pagans had their temples, over time, Christians began to have their places of worship that came to be known as Kyriakos, the Lord's. And this Greek term, this Greek term, Kyriakos, or the word church, it's not a translation of ecclesia. It's actually a substitution for ecclesia based on Kyriakos. And based on that term, over time, Christian places of worship were transliterated from that word Kyriakos. And you can see it in the German word for church, which is kirch. The Scottish term, kirk, and the Middle English term, church, just spelled a little differently. You see, our term church came from a term that simply means the Lord's, belonging to the Lord. You can even see it when you look at a screenshot of the definition of church. Most modern dictionaries, when they get the word church, they don't refer to the assembly of believers. They refer to the place of the assembly. That highlight kind of blurs out the definition here. A building for public and especially Christian worship. A building. You see, that term that came from Kyriakos, that term church, really is a reference to the building used for assembling rather than to the assembly itself. And that means that church was the word originally applied to the building for Christian worship that was extended to the Christian community, as one author said. So here's the point. Ecclesia and church are not technically synonymous terms. Technically speaking, ecclesia is a reference to the members of a Christian assembly, while church is a reference to the physical location of that assembly. And that goes against everything we've ever heard. I've preached sermons where I've said it's, that you should not say we're going to church because the church is not a place, it's a people. But guess what? The word church means a place. However, it's the only English term we've ever been given to refer to the assembly. And while it may not be the grammatically correct term, and while its etymology may not harken back to ecclesia, it's still the term that is most prevalent and understood as a reference to the body of believers. And so I'm not trying to get you to stop using the word church. 
Because the rest of this sermon, you're going to hear me use it incorrectly from what I just told you. So hold on. My goal is to get us to understand what the church is. And while ecclesia and church are not related terms, it is the one that you're going to find in your English Bible every time you see ecclesia. And so we're going to use it in that way. But I need you to understand what ecclesia really means. You see, when we go back to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and we're told that Jesus built his church on this rock, I will build my church. He was not saying, I will build my place of worship. He was saying, I will build my gathering of people. That's what Jesus was saying. And that has some major implications for our understanding of the church. First and foremost, it means that Jesus built a people and not a place. This is evidenced in the first century ecclesia, the first century church, by the fact that they did not meet in a single location. I've already referenced that in Acts chapter 2. They met in the temple and in the homes of members. That's how they started off. They didn't have dedicated places to meet. Over time, we'll later learn that the ecclesia met outdoors, such as a place of prayer in Acts chapter 16. A place of prayer down by the river in Philippi. And then if you skip over to Acts chapter 19, you'll find out that they start meeting in, in public spaces, such as the Hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. And what you see when you consider this, uh, how these places and these locations of meeting tie together, what you see is that the church is, is demonstrating that they are not a facility. They are an assembly. The ecclesia, the called out, are an assembly, not a facility. And they meet wherever it's feasible. And Luke's description of what happened to the church after Saul initiated his persecution also helps us understand that the church is a people and not a place. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we are told that on the day Stephen was martyred, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The important thing to note from this detail is that the church was scattered. In other words, the, the church was forced to disperse. The ecclesia were forced to disperse from Jerusalem because of this intense persecution. And the thing is, a, a physical location cannot scatter. A physical location cannot disperse, but a people can. A people, an assembly, a congregation can disperse and can scatter. And then in verse 3, Luke of, uh, here of Acts chapter 8, Luke indicated that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and condemned them in prison. Luke's description indicates that Saul did not go to church buildings to locate the ecclesia. Instead, he went from house to house confronting individuals and families. Why? Because Saul understood that the ecclesia is a people, not a place. Now, why does that matter? Why take time today to spend time talking about this? Why is it important that we understand that the church, the ecclesia, is a people and not a place. It's because when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to care more about being at the building than being in one another's lives. 
And when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to stop searching for people out there and start waiting for them to come in here. And when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to become internally focused, focused on keeping the doors open rather than externally focused, focused on keeping the mission going. And when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to gauge faithfulness based on our presence at the building rather than our participation in the kingdom. See, here's the point. Jesus constructed a people rather than a place, and understanding that helps us keep the kingdom in proper perspective. The kingdom is about people, not places. And that means our membership cannot be measured by a presence at a particular location. Instead, our membership is measured by our presence in the lives of a particular people and our participation in a particular work. Jesus built a people, not a place. And we need to grasp that if we want to grasp membership in the body of Christ. And this idea of of Christ building a people is important for another reason. That's because Jesus designed his people to be an organism, not an organization. In the New Testament, several metaphors are used in reference to God's people. Jesus compared them to a herd of sheep in John chapter 10, a vine in John chapter 15, and John identified God's people as a bride, as Christ's bride, particularly in the book of Revelation. And Paul frequently referred to them as a body in passages like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, those metaphors may not mean a whole lot to you at first, but when you consider the common denominator between all of them, between a sheep, a vine, a bride, and a body, what you'll see is that they are all animate. They are all alive. And that is why the church must be viewed as an organism rather than an organization. Because an organism has life. An organization does not. See, the primary difference between an organization and an organism is that the latter requires you to be connected to others. And that means the church, again, the ecclesia, is not simply an organization in which membership is placed. It's an organism in which membership is practiced. Let me explain what I mean. When it comes to being a member of an organization, there are basically three things you have to do. That organization can be a booster club. That organization can be the PTA at your local school. That organization can be any sort of civic group you want to be a part of. But to be a member in good standing in an organization, whether that be a country club where you play golf or a meeting of people who raise money together, you have to attend the meetings, you have to keep the rules, and you have to pay the dues. 
If you will attend the meetings, if you will keep the rules, and you will pay the dues, you will be a member in good standing with whatever organization it is. Now, in 2018, I was a member in good standing with Planet Fitness. But you know what? I, regu- I, I irregularly went. I never missed a payment. I followed all the rules when I was in there. I didn't grunt loud or anything. And the, even though I only entered the facility one-tenth of the days I was a member, they still viewed me as a member in good standing because they're just an organization. I am currently a member in good standing with my HOA. I'm a member in good standing, and I have yet to attend one of their meetings. I did fill out my proxy card one time. I'm a member in good standing because I haven't broken any of the laws of the HOA, and I'm a member in good standing primarily because I pay my dues every year. That's an organization's mindset. You can be a part of an organization without ever having to develop an intimate or accountable relationship with the other members of the organization. And far too many of us approach the ecclesia, the church, with that same mentality. We far too often approach church as if I show up on Sunday morning and I check that box, if I don't do anything too morally, too morally, uh, uh, too, too morally complicated or too morally uh, contradictory to Scripture, and if I'll write that check or p- give my contribution on a regular basis, then guess what? They're going to leave me alone. I'm a member in good standing. That's often how people approach the church. But the church is not an organization. The church is an organism. And that's a completely different approach to how membership is practiced. Think about an organism. An organism doesn't measure membership like an organization. An organism measures membership by participation and functionality and reciprocity. Think about your physical body for a moment, one of the chief metaphors used in Scripture in regards to the body of Christ. Could you lose a member of your physical body and not know it? One preacher used this illustration, and I loved it. He said, has your child ever come home from school without their arm? And you're like, where'd your arm go? I don't know. I think I left it in the locker. It doesn't happen that way. If you lose a member of your physical body, you know it. You feel it. For most of us, a member of our physical body lets the rest of it know when it's hurting. You ever stubbed your toe in the middle of the night? You ever gotten up and and walking across your room in the dark, stepped on a Lego? If you stub your toe or you step on a Lego, your whole body knows it. Because you start hopping around on that one foot. Oh, your head starts throbbing. 
your brain is sending these signals saying, help the little foot, help the little foot, help the little foot. It doesn't matter that it's not an emergency room visit. You feel the pain the same. Because your body is an organism, not an organization. And God has called the church to be a body, not an organization. Look at what Paul compares the ecclesia to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, I skipped, I'm sorry. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You see, an organism has attachments. An organism has connections. An organism is intertwined. And what happens to one part of an organism affects all the other parts because they are members of one another. That's why Paul said in the 26th verse of this same chapter, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Jesus did not build his ecclesia to serve in isolation, to exist independently of one another, or to operate individualistically. He made his ecclesia an organism that is dependent on each other and devoted to practicing membership, not just placing it. And here's the point. Jesus created us to be an organism, an organism, not an organization. And that means our interconnectedness matters. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what this looks like. We're going to talk about how this manifests itself through fellowship and participation and accountability and unity. Because we need to practice greater membership. But before we dive into all that, we need to start by asking two simple questions. The first is, are you a member of the body? Because there are some of us out here right now who have not done what is required of one to be added to the body of Christ. In order to be added to the body of Christ, you must believe that Jesus Christ is his risen son. You must Confess that belief. You must repent of your sins and you must be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And it may be that you're sitting out here in this group today or listening online and you haven't made that decision to become a part of the body of Christ. And that opportunity is available. And we invite you to make that decision. And maybe if you're not ready today, oh, as you hear about the body over the next few weeks, you'll realize why it's so very important you become a part of it. But the overarching reason you should be a part of the body of Christ is because it's only those who are in the body of Christ who receive salvation. But that's just the first question. The second question is to those who have already joined the body. And that question is this. Are you practicing your membership? If you're not practicing your membership, then are you really part of the body?
if you're just showing up and doing your own thing and not contributing, not connecting, not uniting, not being held accountable or holding others accountable, are you really a part of the body? Or are you just a severed limb? This morning and over the next few weeks, we're going to challenge our perceptions of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And by the end of it, I hope we all will be better members than we were this day. If you need to change the way you practice your membership, you're invited to make that correction as well today, while together we stand and sing.